All right, thank you for joining me in prayer. And I'll invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Romans 1. Uh, this evening, we think on grace. This week uh, was a, a unique week, many of you know, um, for any number of reasons. Um, it was a busy one for me, a lot of change, and, and not just for me. And as I have gone throughout this week, I've been thinking a lot about grace, holding my new baby girl who was a week old yesterday and thinking about grace, interacting with my children and my wife and thinking about grace. We talk about grace and we define grace as unmerited favor, being given something that I do not deserve. And just as when we talk about mercy, which is unmerited pardon, not being given something I do deserve, we talk about mercy in, in respect to not being given something negative that I deserve, right? Not, not, that, not that mercy is not being given something positive that I deserve because I've earned it. Uh, mercy is not when I've done a day's work and then the guy um, doesn't give me my, my paycheck, right? That's not mercy. Uh, mercy is when there's a negative, uh, a, a negative consequence that I deserve, and yet I am passed over. I am, I am not. Uh, the The consequence is not levied upon me. Grace is when I have done something wrong, when I have done something negative, when I have done something um, which does incur a penalty, and I am not given that penalty, though I deserve it. Unmerited favor, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. I did not earn it. I am not worthy of it, but I receive it nonetheless. And this is such an important remembrance that mercy is, or grace, excuse me, is unearned, unmerited. That if I could earn it, and if I do earn it, it is not grace. If I do deserve it, it is not grace. If I am worthy of it, it is not grace. Don't forget that. Don't forget that grace is unmerited. And as we think of grace, there's any number of places to go, but I don't know that there is any better place than Romans 1 through 5. Romans 1 through 5, Paul begins building an argument. Romans 1 and 2, Paul speaking of the unbelieving world and man's natural relationship uh, to, uh, really 1 through 3, man's natural relationship to um, sin, and to offenses against God. Then in chapter 3, verse 21, and then going on through verse 5, it is an exposition of grace, expounding upon grace. And then chapters 6, 7, and 8 is what do we do with grace? Chapters 9, 10, and 11, what about Israel? Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, speaking unto the practical then, realities of the Christian life within the scope of these theological realities. We're not going to get into six and beyond tonight. We're not going to continue thinking through um, all of the, the applications and implications of grace. I just want to think about grace. Again, as we've done several times throughout our time uh, where, we're, where we're not meeting in person, uh, I'm not necessarily treading new ground, but it's important, and I don't think I do this enough. I don't know about you. It's important to tread old ground, isn't it? 
it's important to not forget. I mow the lawn, and each time I mow the lawn, I cover the same ground. And I cover the same ground because that ground needs to be covered again. Many of the chores around the house are just repetitious things, things that we do again and again and again. We need to cover the same ground in order that we can keep a maintenance of the things that need to be maintained. Education doesn't stop just because I leave school when I'm 18 years old, when I'm 22 years old. Education is an ongoing thing, refreshing myself on the things which I have learned. You don't just read through the Bible once and then say, oh, okay, I've read that book now, because we need a constant renewal, a constant refresher, a constant reminding of the things of God. And there is nothing more worthy of our remembrance than grace. Chapter 1, Paul, of course, introduces himself and introduces uh, his, his thoughts and, and his love for the people of Rome. He speaks of his desire to share the gospel and to, to see them in Rome, that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And he says this in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation because if there is anyone who is just, the idea of being just, being right legally, so a just man, justice is done, and when justice is done, that means that a person is, is, has the law, the, the, the full effect of the law born upon them, and through the full effect of the law, they, are, they are, are brought to a place of equilibrium with the law. They are brought to a place where they are um, they're brought to justice. And when justice has been served, there's no longer anything between themselves and the law. So if a person does wrong and they go to jail and they spend 60 days in jail and then they're released, there is now nothing, there should be, it's not this way in our society because our, our society has become inherently unjust, but it, it, it ought to be that their debt to society is now paid, they are now right before the law, there is nothing as far as the law and them, between them and the law, between them and society, because justice has been satisfied. The just Paul says, beginning in Romans 1, shall live by faith. And so the just man is not the morally perfect man. The just man is the man that lives by faith. And I know we covered a, a, good, a good bit of this uh, on Tuesday nights in, in any number of forums. But remember that. That's how Paul is introducing Romans. The just shall live by faith. And then he goes on to talk about why this is necessary. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, that idea being to grab or to hold down the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him 
from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain, empty in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we have a situation here where we recognize why God is, was, is angry. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Men who have a measure of the truth and yet they, 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 they don't align themselves with it. This is what God is angry at. God is angry at, at an offense against himself, an offense against the truth. And why? Because the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen by the things that are made. Even not just his existence, but his eternal power and Godhead. And so we find here then that mankind has a measure of truth that is revealed to them inherently, but that the majority of mankind, that the wrath of God is revealed against man because he has rebelled against this truth, he has rejected this truth, he has, he has suppressed that truth, and instead, knowing God, don't glorify him as God, but rather elevate ourselves, become vain, empty in our own minds, and darken our own hearts. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like, un, made like unto corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts into creeping things. So instead we make gods in our own images. We erect other things to be our gods. And why do we do so? Because those things being made in our image, being made in the image of four-footed beasts and creeping things, that they can be understood, they can be controlled, they can be contained. They are within our system, and because they are within our system, they are manipulatable. Because they are within our system, they are malleable. Because they are within our system, they conform to us rather than asking us to conform to them. And we like this because it, it, it becomes a cloak for our sin. And so God, in response to this, gave man up to uncleanness. That when man rejects the truth, when man steps outside of that which has been revealed unto him and steps into the darkness of his own foolish heart and steps into the vanity of his own imagination, we're actually going to be talking about that in Proverbs. If I had continued in Proverbs, um, we would be in a similar place. But tonight I want to talk about grace. And so, having rejected this light, God lends them into this darkness, where then the manifestations of this darkness within their heart uh, begin to boil over into their lives. And so, we see the various evidences here of man's sinful state, of man's rejection of truth and of light. They dishonor their bodies between themselves. They change the truth of God into a lie. They worship the creature more than the creator. Uh, they're given over to unnatural, vile affections. The women changing the natural use in, uh, into that which is against nature. The men leaving the woman, burning in lust one toward another. Uh, this is sodomy that's being spoken of here. Um, God gives them over to reprobate minds, doing things which are not convenient, doing things which are not appropriate 
doing things which are beyond and outside of nature, outside of anything that is natural, anything um, that, that reflects design. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And so they are given over to these things, but they don't just... Uh, uh, step into these things, but they rejoice in these things. Um, they they have pride parades over these things, right? They they are they they glory in their rebellion. Now you and I, we hear this. Churchgoers hear this. Christians hear this. Religious people of all stripes. Will look at these things that are being done and they say, that's wrong. They say, glad I'm not like that. Because these religious people have assumed a template, a template by which they have arranged their lives and they have asserted an authority over them that has a standard of morality that reflects light and truth. And they've aligned themselves with that standard. And notice I say religious people. Because Paul then turns his attention in chapter 2 to the Jews. He says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that, judge, that judgest doth, doest the same things. Excuse me. Paul changes uh, here, notice, from second person plural to second person singular. He changes from the you of chapter 1, speaking to the whole church, to thou art inexcusable, O man. So he's stepped into directing his address to, to an O man, to, to a hypothetical man, revealing that, that he's speaking not, not to the readers of the church there, but rather to a hypothetical, self-righteous man who judges the reprobate on moral grounds thinking that he is okay because he's a moral man all the while doing the same things in his heart, living in the same condition, sinful condition in his heart. So this is the shift here. Therefore thou, and I love this about the King James Bible, right? We've gone from you, ye, your, to thee, thou, the, 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 the thou, thine. There we go. And, we, and the, the King James Bible helps us see that Paul has changed a context here. Now we're on the hypothetical. So that person, that person who is a self-righteous moralizer, that person who, who understands the law of God, that person that has identified moral principles and precepts, and yet you are still inexcusable. You're still guilty too because you are standing over other men in moral uh, self-righteous superiority, judging them when your heart is just as wicked, even if you're not doing the same things. But we are sure, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things, and thinkest thou, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? 
But after the hardness, after thy hardness and impenitent heart, unrepentant heart, treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. God will not respect your lineage on the day of judgment. God will not respect your knowledge on the day of judgment. God will respect, as we saw earlier, justice on the day of judgment. For as many have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. That would be speaking to those who have not lived under the law, who have lived outside of the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Okay, so we have those that live outside of the law, those that live lawlessly, and as those that live lawlessly, they will be judged for their lawlessness. But here's the other warning. Those that lived under the law will be judged by the law and thus will be held to the standard of the law. Neither one of those sounds very good, does it? Verse 13, for, the hearers of the, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, and so we see this reality that it is not the hearers of the law. It is not simply the fact uh, that, the, that the Jews had the law. It is not simply the fact that they were cognizant of the law that is going to give them any benefit on, on the day, but only to the extent that they were able to keep the law. And when a Gentile keeps the law, though he does not have the law, and yet he identifies in creation various elements of God's design and he aligns himself with them, that man is doing a better job at aligning with the law than the Jew that has it, but is not obeying it. Behold, verse 17, Thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of truth in the law. So now he speaks explicitly to the Jew and he says, you're one that knows the law. You're one that lives this high moral standard and you are confident that you are a teacher of babes, that you are one who knows these things and can direct others into a knowledge of these things of the law. Verse 21, thou therefore that teachest, uh, teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest the man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest, a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast in the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Isaiah 52.5 For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. You have 
no claim to God if you are a breaker of the law. See, what Paul is doing in these first two chapters is he is bringing everyone down to the same level. Stay with me here tonight. He's bringing everyone down to the same level, the great leveler of sin. See, because the moralizer is a sinner as well. And he does so much to try to avoid the reality of his own sinfulness. That's why he's doing what he's doing. And he's standing above others and he is uh, looking at others and comparing himself with others, as we talked about last week, in order to feel better about himself. But he is busy judging others so that he doesn't have to look at himself because he too is a sinner. This is the great leveler. And so Paul is bringing the Jews to a realization that they too are under sin because they're under the law and they'll be judged by a law which they simply cannot measure up to. Verse 27, And shall not the uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter of uncircumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose practice is not of men, but of God. Again, here not saying that, that the church has replaced Judaism, but rather that that unique and personal relationship with God, which is what circumcision was intended to reflect, and we'll see that in chapter 4. That unique and personal relationship with God is not to the person who has any sort of knowledge or who, who has uh, uh, put some sort of mark on his body, but rather the one who obeys, the great leveler of sin. And this brings us to chapter 3. This is where we finish our thinking about sin and then we transition into our thinking about grace. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, Paul says, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. That doesn't mean there's not an advantage in this context of being a Jew. Why? Because the Jews have been given the law, which means they have been drawn closer to a knowledge of God. In other words, they've been given more light. And there is an advantage in that they have been given more light. It's only good if they accept that light, though. It's only good if they, if, if they live in the advantage that they have. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Paul is giving another hypothetical here, and he's speaking as an unbeliever. He's speaking as an unbeliever here. And he says that just because uh, there are those, particularly among the Jews in this context, uh, who have not received, who have not believed, does that make God unjust? Does that make faith, the faith of God, without effect? Because certain ones have not believed, even though they had all of this light, even though they've had these oracles, even though they've had this knowledge. No. So the question that the unbeliever, the question that the unlearned would ask is, is it wrong for God to take vengeance when the unrighteous commend the righteousness of God? 
if God's righteousness is magnified through my unrighteousness, and we've explained this before, if my unrighteousness serves to, to, to magnify God's righteousness and thus in a roundabout way glorify God, then is God wrong to take vengeance upon me for glorifying him through my unrighteousness, which puts such a distinction between me and God and just shows how, how powerful and holy and just and righteous God is by my sin. God forbid, he says. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet also judged? Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. And so if we lived in that sort of a system, then we'd say, okay, well then we have the right to do evil, because by doing evil, we're actually doing good. Because the good of God being mag God's righteousness being magnified is actually uh, established and heightened by my evil. Therefore, let us do good that evil may, may come. And justifies the means. No. Paul says the damnation of this thinking is just. What then? Are we better than they? So then are we better? Are the, is the moralizer better? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Okay, so the Gentile magnifies God's righteousness all the more through the depravity of their own sin. So that when a person sees the Gentile living the way he lives, they say, wow, God is so much more righteous than this. Does that make them right? Well, no. Their damnation is just. Well, then does that make me better than them? Because I don't do those things. Because I'm a moralizer. Do I, who was saved at a young age and who uh, has thus lived a, a relatively moral life, am I better than you who is listening there and who has made all of those mistakes in those years before you got saved? Am I any better? No. For we have already recognized, we have already established that we are all under sin. My heart and your heart are both sinful hearts. As it is written, verse 10, chapter 3, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after a God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Not you, not me, not any moralizer. We are all gone out of the way. The great leveler. Doesn't matter what family you were born into. Doesn't matter if you went to church or not. Now, is there an advantage if you've gone to church? If is, is there an advantage if you've been born into a moral, uh, um, God-fearing home? Yes. Just like with the Jews, unto them was committed the oracles of God. If you sit in a household that fears God, that reads His Word, that memorizes His Word, that sings of His Word, that sings of His attributes, that goes to church, you have significantly more life. Therefore, you have an advantage, but that advantage is only good as the extent to which you receive it. You don't receive it, it does you no good. But that by no means implies that you and I aren't sinners. It by no means implies that you, living in that Christian household, going to church, and yet an unbeliever, yet in your sin, 
by no means implies that you are in any better of a place than that person halfway across the world who has no access to church with God right now. That your heart, your sinful heart is no better. Paul continues to quote Old Testament scriptures. He's quoted Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm chapter 5 here in the beginning of, of chapter 3, verse 13. Their throat is an open, open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's Psalm 140, verse 3. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6, Isaiah 59, 7. Destruction and misery in the ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is man's state. Moral, immoral. This is man's state. Churched, unchurched. This is man's state. This is what is in man's heart. Verse 19, Now we know that whatsoever thing the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And this is where we transition. Think about this with me. So far, this message has been heavy. Because these chapters are heavy. And these chapters are heavy because they bring us face to face with the reality of sinfulness. With just how far short you and I naturally fall from God. We can't get there. I can't get there. There's no way for me to get to Him. He is too high. He is too great. He is too righteous. He is too holy. He is worthy. I am not doesn't matter how many good things I've done. doesn't matter all the moral things that I have, that I've established. It doesn't matter how I've framed my life. It doesn't matter what mistakes I have or have not made or what I've avoided or not as it relates to this thing because my heart is the same. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are all under sin. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And this is so important. It's so important for us to remember this foundation. And it's important for us to remember this foundation. Because it's so easy, especially in a God-fearing church of multi-generational Christians who have very high standards, to begin to get the feeling as though something about what we are doing is making us something special in the sense of us and God. That somehow God, we have finally gotten ourselves to the place where God accepts us. But we have this great leveler called sin, which puts you and me, I don't know who's listening, whoever you are, it puts us on the same plane, the same playing field, level playing field. And then that level playing field where we're all sinners is offered grace. Verse 21, 
But now the righteousness of God without the law, outside of the law, completely irrespective of the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. It's a big long chunk there, but Paul does these run-on sentences and you can't stop in the middle. The righteousness of God without the law is manifest. It was, it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets spoke of this righteousness. Ezekiel wrote of the day when their hearts would be made clean. Jeremiah wrote of the day when their hearts would be circumcised. Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, when those dry bones would gain flesh. Isaiah saw unto the day of grace. They lived within the context of this desire for grace. David lived within the context of this desire for grace. Abraham lived within the context of this desire for grace. They were witnesses to the reality of the grace that would come. And they lived within the context of a grace which would be bought for them. Knowing that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, between those under the law and those without the law, but only that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the righteousness of God is not found in me or them. The righteousness of God is not found in the legalizer or the lawless. The righteousness of God is found in Jesus Christ alone. That if there is any who are just, if there is any who have satisfied God's requirement, if there is any who will stand before God's law one day and there will be a justice between him and God as it relates to God's law, as it relates to God's requirement, it will not be the man who has done. It will be the man who has received what God has given to him, though he could never earn it and never deserve it. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He redeemed us. And thus through him we can be justified, declared righteous. Not innocent, but declared not guilty grace. You could never earn it. You could never be worthy of it. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, a covering, an atonement. That word propitiation, it's the same word that is used to designate the mercy seat. It is the idea of, of, of a covering for my sin. God set Jesus forth to be that propitiation, to be that covering through faith in his blood to declare 
not my works for the remission of sins, but his righteousness for the remission of sins. That sin is remitted not because of what I've earned, not because of what I've done, not because of what I haven't done, but because of what Christ has already done. Through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Notice where it centers. That God might be just. In order that God can be just, he does not offend justice. He does not offend holiness. He does not offend righteousness. But he is able also to give me justification by Christ's righteousness. And so God is both just and the justifier of who? Of them that believe in Jesus. Of those who have accepted what Jesus did for them. Paul then asks, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Law of works? No, nay. But by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yea, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Same, same standard. In the law, out of the law. The just shall live by faith. Grace. Paul then goes on in chapter 4 to speak to the reality that this is not something that is, is exclusively for any particular time in history. He acknowledges that Abraham was saved in this same way. Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham did not work for his righteousness. If, if, if he worked, it would have been reckoned not of grace, but of debt. See, if you try to work off your sin, if you try to work your way into favor with God, then what you are doing is you are operating in the context of debt. That you owe God something, and because you owe God something, you are going to act in a certain way to try to pay it off. It doesn't work that way. It cannot work that way. If you do that, if you live that way, if this is the context within which you're living your life, trying to earn something, trying to work something as it relates to your relationship with God, your favor with God, it doesn't work. It's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is being given something I don't deserve. He that worketh, it is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. The person that believes, that truly believes that God can justify the ungodly, which means you're acknowledging that you are ungodly and that you need justification and you find it in Christ, which is the only way, who is the only way. His faith is counted for righteousness. He believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That's what happened to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 6 tells us that. That was before the law. 
Okay, so pastor, before the law, it was grace. Well, but then the law comes in, right? So, so once the law comes in, then it's grace plus the law, right? I mean, that, that, that's why the law was there. You added the law to it. Wrong. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. David as well. Cometh this blessedness, verse 9, upon the circumcision only or on the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision? Well, maybe it was the circumcision thing then, right? Maybe it's not the law. Okay, pastor, it's not the law, but maybe it's circumcision. Well, wait a minute. Did Abraham receive these promises in circumcision or uncircumcision? It was uncircumcision. Circumcision then, that's not it. And the law, that's not it. Abraham was pre-law. David, in the law, says no works. Imputed righteousness, justification by faith alone. Circumcision? Nope. Abraham was not circumcised when he received these things. What is it then? It's grace. It's grace. So, Paul continues to speak of Abraham Staggering not, verse 20, at the promises of God through unbelief, being strong in the faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. He was fully persuaded that God's word was true. He was fully persuaded that what God has said, God would do. Therefore, it was given unto him. It was imputed unto him unto righteousness. Therefore, he was declared righteous. That's grace. Abraham did not earn that. Abraham did not deserve that. It was given to him because he believed. We get to chapter 5. We skipped a little bit of there for time. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory of God. There are two things that this justification has done for us. First, this justification has given us a peace with God that whereas before there was an enmity between us and God, whereas before there was a separation between us and God because of this sin which had been paid for on the cross but then has been has kept us in, in distance from God through our refusal to accept his son, we are now reconciled unto God and given peace. But more than this, notice this, it doesn't just give us peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but also gives us access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Access by faith into grace. And notice this, the grace wherein we stand. We don't just step into salvation by grace, and then we're on our own. We stand in grace. Grace is the context of the Christian life. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So we go through this process, this process whereby we are growing, we are growing, even through tribulation, 
And so we can be we can we can glory in those tribulations because they work patience and patience works experience and experience works hope. And hope brings us closer to our expectation of the Lord. Verse 6 For when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. You see grace? God did not die, Jesus said, when he walked upon this earth. For I have not come to call the, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that doesn't mean he didn't come for a certain subset of people. The problem was, they didn't think they were sinners and they needed to realize they were. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I hope that everyone on the sound of my voice has come to the point in your life where you have recognized that because you're a sinner you have fallen short of the glory of God and you need Christ's imputed righteousness and that you have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You have received that gift. But it's not just a grace that, that, that draws us into our Christian life. It is a grace in which we stand. Much more than, verse 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now that we are reconciled, we can live moment by moment, day by day, in this grace. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Then he goes on to speak of original sin. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin was there, man lived under that sin, but the, real, the, the, the fullest realities of his sin was magnified by the law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, verse 14, who is the figure of him that was to come, Adam being a type of Christ. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men unto condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered into this scenario, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The preeminence of grace. The, 
the reign of grace in our hearts. That as by the offense of one, all of these things happened, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace thus putting us into a context of life whereby we live in life, not in death. Whereby we are free to live life, abundant life, not death. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've been thinking a lot about grace this week. And what it means. What does it mean to you and to me that we live under grace? Well, we know as we were, if we were to continue in chapter 6 that it does not mean that we can continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid that we should do this. That's not what, what grace is about. But it does form, it frames our life. It frames the context of how we live this life. Not under the letter. Not under shame and guilt. Not under fear. Not under doubt. But in confidence and in joy. It frames our expectations of the world to come. It frames our knowledge of, of, of life and life more abundantly. Yes, it, it formulates our mindset for the life that is to come. Yes, we understand that those who go to heaven are not those who do good things, but those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Those who have placed themselves under the blood. It has nothing to do with what I do or don't do. It has nothing to do with what I can or cannot earn. It has nothing to do with my disposition entering into or leaving this world as it relates to moral choices. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done for me. And you've got to remember that. We considered that this past week as we talked together Thursday night. We need to remember grace is the standard, not works, not choices, moral choices, grace, Christ, faith. But what about our lives, living this life under grace? Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus exhorts unto sound, or Paul exhorts Titus unto teaching sound doctrine. Aged men be sober. Aged women be in behaviors becometh holiness. Young women to be sober and love their husbands and chaste and discreet. Young men sober minded, showing a pattern of godliness. Why? Why live this way? What does it mean? What, 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 what is this exhortation unto a certain manner of living? Is this the legal requirement? Is this the earning? No. Notice what, he, what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, 
and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. See, here's what happened. Grace is unmerited favor, being given something I don't deserve. Grace is God saying that there is no conditions upon which uh, you can th align with me Thus, you accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I will accept Christ's alignment on your behalf. And then because I no longer have to spend my life measuring up, I am free. I am free to spend my life living up. I am free to spend my life not having to chase the ball of my own moral incapacities, but rather to aspire unto the one who gave me life. It is an entirely different context for living. It is liberty, not bondage. It is freedom, not chains. It is not a ball and chain that I have clasped around my ankle and drag around the expectations of God for the rest of my life. Those expectations were satisfied in Christ. It is the release from those shackles so that then I am free to do as I could, as I, as I would desire to do for him because I'm no longer bound by the weight of that expectation, of that law, of that legal requirement. Colossians says, blotting out the, the, the handwriting of ordinances against me, nailing them to his cross. It's kind of like school. You follow a desired path when you get to college. And if you're in a liberal arts college, not a vocational college, you're doing all sorts of other things, right? You're writing and you're doing math and you're doing science and you're doing literature and you're, you're doing all of these things. And so you go and you get the, the, all of that and then you're doing some, thing that, some things that you, you, you are a part of your degree but even then, you know, I, I get a, a computer science degree and I'm uh, coding silly things and I'm uh, learning about device drivers and all of these things. And then I get out of school and I get my degree. And now that I have graduated, uh, I don't stop learning, but now I'm free. Now I'm free to learn on my own time and in my own context. I'm free to pursue my own vision. I'm free to pursue my own passions. I have been liberated not from education, not from learning, not from personal growth and development, but I have been liberated to develop without having to have that, that ball and chain of grades and deadlines and due dates that, that, would, that would maybe motivate me, but also cause me to spend a lot of time doing things in order to get those grades and meet those deadlines that I other time that I otherwise could have been spent doing something that might have actually helped me progress more in my passion and knowledge. Grace does not free me to sin. Grace does, however, free me from the feeling of the need to have to constantly measure up to something that I cannot. And if you live, Christian, under that weight, if you look at, at, at people around you and you say, oh, they're, 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 they, they've got their lives together and I don't. Or 
um, if, if, if you're looking around you and you're doing the opposite and you're saying, oh, I got my life together and, and they don't, you, you're missing grace. You're missing the freedom. I am free to not have to compare myself to others. I am free to not have to chase my own moral incapacities. Running behind myself, trying to measure up. I am free simply to live up to Christ. To pursue Him rather than having to measure up to Him. And thank God for grace. How are you doing this evening in grace? First off, are you in grace? Are you under grace? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Second, are you so busy trying to measure up to your perception of what God expects of you or how you look at others that you are not living in grace? Third, are you taking advantage of grace? living out a measure of sinfulness because you have grace now, so who cares? Let us do evil that good may come. Let us continue in sin that grace may abound. Not only are all of these things missing the mark, but all of these fall so far short of what God has for you. Of, of the joy and the peace and the liberty of grace. Much to the contrary, this unmerited favor, this gift which you could never earn or deserve, brings you to a place where you are liberated to pursue God without all of that extra stuff in between. And maybe tonight you need to refocus on doing exactly that on your relationship with God. Not measuring up to Him. Not measuring up to someone else's expectation of you as it relates to biblical things. But of knowing God. Loving God. Recognizing the freedom that He has purchased for you. Loving Him for it. And living up to it. 